Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to another episode of What Next? Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Moran Cerf, who is a professor of neuroscience and business at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. And like me, Moran is based in Chicago. Welcome, Moran. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. I would love to hear from you a little bit about your background and your exalted title and field of work. Sure. So I guess uh, there are three hats that I wear, and based on who talks to me, they choose which ones they want to hear more about. But in the context of today, the first and foremost hat is that I'm a professor of neuroscience and business, which means that I study the brain and try to understand how people make decisions. And then I try to help companies implement the knowledge about the brain so they make decisions better or understand themselves. The other two hats that may or may not come together in our conversation is that I used to be a hacker for nearly 10 years of my life and somehow it still informs what I do right now and that I have a mini side job but it actually is really relevant to what I do right now where I help uh, filmmakers put science in movies in Hollywood. Really? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that last one because I love anything to do with Hollywood. (laughs) So I'll give you kind of the incentive. I have a feeling, and this podcast of yours is another example of that, scientists need to speak to the public about their work, not just to write academic papers, because my best paper has 30 people who read it, but talk that I give here about the paper would reach millions of people. So in that sense, I feel that Hollywood or any medium that gets access to the real world is useful. Hollywood, in my mind, is the best way to get messages out. So I said, I'm going to work with filmmakers and TV series creators to put science in their films. And it's been going on for 10 years now where I would occasionally get an email from a filmmaker who says, I'm making a movie, say, about quantum physics and uh, space exploration. And there's a scene there where the Martian puts two ingredients and there's an explosion, but I don't know what the ingredients are. So you scientists come up with two. And then I spend time researching something and I give them the number and I say, put the chlorium and add some plutonium and like mix that together and that's going to happen. And I need to give them the exact amounts and what they will wear. And that's how the movie looks in the end. Well, so you have at least three different lives. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like how did you get this neuroscience degree? And then we can talk a little bit about what neuroscience is. Sure. So after spending Many years as a hacker, I had this chance encounter of, you know, one in a billion with a famous neuroscientist, Francis Crick. He was the, in many ways, one of the fathers of neuroscience. Of course, the guy who discovered the DNA and won the Nobel Prize in the 50s for doing so. I met him wearing my hat as a hacker. I was traveling the world and doing hacking jobs and ran into him, so to speak, in in a public event and had a chat with him. And he learned about my profession as a hacker and he had a spark of kind of excitement because he himself was a hacker during uh, World War II. He was one of the people who worked on the German codes and the German satellite imagery. And then when the war ended, he turned to science and used his knowledge from hacking to essentially explore this molecule that no one understood and ultimately discovered DNA. So when he heard about my profession, he said he sees some similarities and he basically gave the one line sentence that is, if you know how to hack into computers, you should try to apply that to hacking into brains, leave your job and go to academia. And uh, with an endorsement of a Nobel laureate and person who did himself the same journey, it was easy to get a a position as a grad student at Caltech. That's when I spent the next five years. 
and from then on gradually changed into becoming a professor from being a hacker. Well, and you casually mentioned Caltech, which for people who may or may not know is sort of if you almost graduate from MIT, then you might be lucky enough to get to Caltech. So <laughs> it, a dream. it is incredible. So you went, as you say, from grappling with software for machines to grappling with software for human minds. Yeah, I do see some analogies between uh, hacking and breaking into black boxes that are owned by banks to breaking into the black box, which is our brain. In that sense, I think there are a lot of similarities in the techniques, in the approach, and also in the learnings. Looking ahead, given the premise of this podcast is what next, what three predictions would you like to make? Okay, so I'll give you one that covers each of my domains and then I'll yes. expand on the third one, which I think is the one that I wish the audience spent most time thinking about. So the first one I would say is that uh, my prediction is that in the next 10 years, I was even going to dare and say five, but let's give me some leeway to be less risky. I said in the next decade, every company will have a neuroscientist among their senior ranks. And this person will help them guide decision-making, marketing strategy, hiring, diversity, and product choices. So I think that the era of neuroscientists in every company is coming. That's one. The second one uh, speaks to my current research and it's uh, specific, but I think it's uh, exciting and I would love to share more about that. And I think that in the next five years, we would be able to read and write people's dreams. So we could read, read everyone's dreams. Read and dream. write people's dreams. Yes. That would be my prediction. So this is Inception. Yes, it is. So I think that, I think that there, there are levels of how it would look, you know, in Inception, they make it into dreams within a dream, within a dream and layers, and you, you actually get to the kernel of who you are and change that and then everything changes. But I think we're going to get to a different uh, aspect of it, which is you would be able to wake up in the morning and get some kind of access to your dreams and we would know, okay, I dreamt of my mom or my dad. You won't forget them. You will somehow know something about them. That's one prediction. And also you will be able to write into them. So you'll be able to say, I'm going to sleep and I want uh, my dream to be positive if it turns negative. And there's going to be a device next to your head that will give you that. This we are going to definitely probe. Already the first one is intriguing. The second one is mind-bending. And you said you wanted to spend the most time with number three. So what is number three? Yeah, I would say number two, because many of the people who listen to you are in the world of marketing and advertising. Sure. I would say that this will become, and this, I actually just wrote a paper about that, uh, that, that speaks about it. I think that a uh, dream marketing would become a reality, as in you would have companies who would try to convince you to buy their I don't know, cereal box while you're sleeping and you would wake up in the morning with a thought that you want that and you wouldn't know that it came to you in your dreams. That's the negative side of the same thing, which I'm happy to explore. I'll give you the third Perfect. one. The third one is the most complex because it has residues, but the title would be that uh, in the next 10 years, people will have neural implants uh, for recreational reasons put in their brains. That's the headline. The sub-headline would be that it will enable us to have fantastic experiences, as in we wouldn't need a phone to navigate. We would just think, how do I get to uh, Richard's place? And it will just uh, tell me, make a left turn, make a right turn. And it would feel to me like it's coming out of my mind, but it actually will be my brain using the neural implant, asking Google Maps, getting the answer, coming back, and all will feel to us like it's mine. We would know how to compare car prices in our brain by looking at all the websites. We would have all the facts accessible to us because we'd be able to go to Wikipedia in our mind. Those are all the positives. The negatives are that it will be a difficult world for people to know reality. 
because uh, fake memories will become part of our life. We wouldn't know if a memory that we have is real or something that someone, a hacker, put in our brain. We wouldn't have a full grasp of reality because we wouldn't be able to trust our own eyes. The same way, the neural implant could actually show us different things or hide from us things that our eyes propose. And ultimately, the grim and the worst case scenario would be to create an entire world of inequality, not in money, which is the inequality we have right now, but in thoughts. You will have people that are super smart, have access to the best neural implants and can really think profound thoughts and get to places without making mistakes. And the poor ones who are poor, not in money, but in IQ. And that would be the worst case scenario of this third and not unlikely outcome. I'm going to reiterate the three. The first one is that within the next 10 years, most companies will have a neuroscientist among their senior folks. That makes a lot of sense if you then consider number two, that part of what the world of business and marketing is about selling. And if you can both read and write dreams, and in many ways, selling and marketing and business is really about dreams in some ways, that would be important. But then your third one, that within a decade, some of us who can afford it or who have access to it will have neural implants, which will basically enable us to do things that today we need physical hardware devices. And increasingly, those hardware devices will be embedded into us rather than be appendages. And that will both exhilarate and create amazing experiences, but will also create potentially huge amounts of questions from what is real and what isn't, and will there be an upper class and another class? So it's almost like Brave New World in 1984, but the next generation of it. Exactly right. You said it perfectly. So let us basically start with the third one, because the third one feeds to eventually, as that spreads into dreams, it also then spreads into the way of business. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of the breakthroughs are, how we're going to see that? And I'm assuming that an early indication of that includes the drugs we take, plus the little miniature AirPods we've already got. I agree. So, so I'll, I'll give you the, the kind of numbers and where it's heading. Right now in the US, you have about 40,000 people who already have neural implants in their brain. All of those people have them because of clinical purposes. So they have epilepsy or, or Parkinson's. And one of the ways by which we treat those is opening your brain, placing a little chip inside your head near the area that is giving you some hard time and using the chip to control whatever you have. So if it's epilepsy, this device might counter the seizure spread and contain it in one area. Now, this device is a digital device that's in your head and it stimulates neurons and it reads uh, from the outside world. And if you want to upgrade it because there's a new firmware, it knows to ping a server every couple of seconds. And if the server answers, it downloads a new update. This is a ripe territory for hackers because now they can uh, pretend to be the server and download the software into your brain that instead of controlling seizures, makes you think different thoughts or gives you uh, access to areas that you shouldn't have access to because they're supposed to be part of your subconscious. That's kind of the opener. Now, not only that, we do have a growing interest in a lot of people, I would say, namely Silicon Valley, in just having neural implants in their brain, not for clinical purposes, just because they think it will enhance their thinking, it will enhance their creativity, it will give them more access to more parts of your, their brain. There are very many 
millionaires and billionaires in Silicon Valley that start companies that are all about finding ways to get into your brain. And even the companies that we know of that are right now in the kind of business of giving you devices that will interact with you are exploring getting into your brain. So Facebook and Apple, those are all companies that say that it's so limiting that we have a phone that we need to use in order to interact with the person. It would be so great if we're in his or her brain, if we can just know what they're about to purchase before they do it and we already can order that uh, for them right away, if we can know how to make decisions so we can influence those. So all those companies are exploring that by hiring my former students as their uh, current employees to think of ways for that. And I think that uh, that's how it's evolving. It's incredibly real because of the reasons you've basically mentioned, if you even see what's happened over the last decade, and the fact that all of these companies, which I've heard of, are spending billions of dollars investing in these new things. And whether it is, you know, the metaverse that was obviously written about a long time ago, but now, you know, Zuckerberg has brought back into sort of conversation. Or, you know, very simply, the other day, I heard something from another one of our guests who basically said one way the metaverse will come to be will be in the automobile, which is going to be, you know, increasingly. And we, if you think about the automobile, the automobile used to have all these appendages, but now we've put it into the software. So the same thing could happen to us. I, I would say right away that I've been contacted by a number of high-end car companies in the last couple of years who wanted to connect the brain of the driver to the car. And I think that there, I should say right away that there is bad and good. So, so, you know, we can all say, oh my God, it's scary. The car is controlled by the brain. But I could easily prove in one of our investigations that it would make you have less accidents because you can, you know, cut the response time by about 300 milliseconds because the moment your eyes see it, they can already break the car, which normally takes a lot longer because your eyes have to talk to the perception area, to the motor area, to send signal to your hand, to, the, to your leg to press on the brake. It takes half a second longer to do it the old-fashioned way. So if we can put your brain in the car, we can actually save a lot of lives. At the same time, you'll be part of your car, which is good and bad. Well, every time you make a statement, it makes me think of a book. So this one makes me think of Stephen King and Carrie, you know, the car that yes. comes to life. It's clearly one of those things. So let's talk about the issue that you could afford this and I couldn't. And then you become more sophisticated and more connected. And I just have to rely on old-fashioned brain power if I even have that. Oh, sorry. I, I'll give you the analogy that, that kind of is right now in my mind. We occasionally as scientists interact with animals and we're very impressed by the animals who can do a remarkable job in solving problems. So there's this uh, famous ape, Lucy, who can communicate using symbols and she can essentially tell the scientists to work with her what she wants and, and explain complex ideas. This ape became subject of multiple academic papers and we say, oh my God, look at her. She interacts like almost like a three-year-old baby. That's how good she is, and, and we can actually learn from her. Now, if you look at Lucy and you look at humans, we're 98% the same DNA-wise, and brain-wise, uh, we have a lot of similarities, but ours is about 10% more sophisticated. So the difference between us and the most sophisticated ape is about, let's say, 10 15% kind of smarts. Now, if we start giving humans neural implants that make them, let's say, 5% smarter, 
So you take the person and give uh, 100 IQ average person suddenly 140 IQ average, or 130 or 20. Like you just increase it by a little bit. You already made them superhumans. If you take a smart person and give them the extra 10%, you made them superhumans that aren't part of our world right now. And the question I ask is, will they treat us like we treat Lucy? Like, will they say, oh, look at Richard. He's so nice. He can uh, do uh, quantum equations in his mind, just like uh, three-year-old Timmy from our species that, uh, you know, has these neural implants and, and, you know, he's so nice. Let's now put Richard back in the cage and give him banana. Because they're going to be a different species, not just like humans that are smarter. They're going to be different ones. And in many ways, we have not experienced that ever in the world. Right now, rich people and poor people still live in the same world. We, you know, we have different experiences, but we're kind of the same entity. But we don't think of the apes as part of us. We don't try to bring them to the therapy chair and ask them what are they thinking about life. That is my fear when it comes to forking because of neural implants, that they're going to be just two types of humans and one wouldn't even care about the other. They wouldn't find us interesting. That does sound like brave new world with the alphas and the gammas, I guess. Let's make sure that for everything we say, we find a book that the audience can look into to get. I agree. It's been discussed in science fiction books and it's something that kind of, it still feels like science fiction. And one of the things I say many times when I talk to the Hollywood people is that the difference between science fiction and science is timing. If you wait long enough, most of Star Trek's gadgets become reality. Most of Star Wars ideas become reality. So in that sense, I think that those ideas that right now feel to us like science fiction, they already are in some labs being made. And in that sense, what's important is to think about them before they're real. Because once you have superhumans, that's too late. Right now that it's not yet out, we need to think about it. Building on this, you probably have seen this show, but if not, my daughter pointed me to a show on Apple Plus. If you have Apple Plus, it's not the morning show. It's not Ted Lasso. It's called Mythic Quest. You should take a look at it. So Mythic Quest is basically a comedy about a gaming company. And in one of the episodes, it goes back to 1972 when Pong was created. And someone looks at Pong and then has a drink and comes back and talks about the future of video games and everybody laughs at them. And now when you think about storytelling and level in video games and the fact that the video game industry is bigger than all the other entertainment industries combined, it's just the last you know two, three decades that's happened. So clearly this is reality. And now with so many new technologies all you know working at the same stage, because it feels to me that some of this is also because of everything from you know modern gene technology, which is where you know Crick started, to quantum computing, to cloud based stuff, AI. Does all of this also accelerate these things? So I think that we both happen to be in an area fraught with new ideas that all become reality. And also we're accelerating the speed by which it happened. So it took, you know, like decades uh, from the day someone had an idea to when it became a reality 100 years ago. And now it could be months or weeks uh, before it you know, turns from an academic paper that says quantum computers are possible theoretically to here's one. And in that sense, the reason I'm so kind of concerned slash excited is because we have had a mini success in dream recording just three years ago. But unlike Crick's time, where another paper would come 10 years after and another one would come 10 years after and then a company would try to implement it and maybe four years after after you have it. Now I think that once we have the proof of concept, it's going to be less than five years until companies are offering dream recording or I used our second bullet, but anything that is in a paper academically, 
turning into a product. So let's now talk about this dream thing, which part of it reminds me of, obviously, we'll now use movies instead of books. There's a little bit, as you say, of Inception, but there's a little bit of the Matrix, where like brains that are sort of dreaming and having all these experiences. But if you look at the world of marketing and advertising, one of the things that a lot of society is grappling with is social media, where people may not be aware of how algorithms are determining what they see and therefore influencing their minds. You already see that but just with social media. And so this, when you start influencing people's dreams, it takes it to a completely a different level. And you believe it's a five to 10 years away? Yes. So I don't even start because social media, it could be its own entire uh, dynamic in that. So I'll, I'll tell you about the dreams and then we can also venture sure. into what happens if big giant monopoly is involved in that. Generally, I'd start by giving the one sentence background of dreams to get everyone's eyes expanding in excitement, which is, Dreams have been fascinating to humans since the dawn of time. We find uh, hieroglyphs and caves with people asking about them. And we know that in history, there's lots of events that were dominated by dreams, wars that were waged or ended, uh, loves that started because of that. Tons of stories. The Bible is full of stories about dreams. So people who were fascinated by dreams forever. However, we didn't have access to dreams up until recently, even though I'm a much appreciative of Freud's work and his uh, kind of ideas about dreams, he didn't have access to dreams. All that Freud had was the story that a person tells you when you wake up. So a person wakes up, remembers something and tells you a story about it. And it's not meaningless. It's useful to have the story because it's coming from the same mind that had the dream. It's important to see what the person says, but it's not a dream. The dream is different than the story we tell when we wake up. So all of last hundred years uh, research on dreams was all flawed in that it was based on stories that we tell ourselves after we wake up. And it uses the language of our awake self and so on to give you a, a concrete kind of anecdote that will help. In the 1910, when people were asked to describe their dreams, most people talked about dreams in black and white because dreams to them seemed like movies that happened in our mind and movies were in black and white. So they said, oh, my dream was also in black and white. And only in the 1950s, where films started having colors, so did people's dreams. They started saying, oh, I dreamt in color. They kind of just intuited, I guess it's a movie and movies look like that. So clearly the dream was one thing, but how they talked about it was biased by what we know about the world around us. Okay, so this was all an exposition to tell you that uh, for a while we didn't really have access to dreams. And only in the last 10 years, did neuroscientists go into this realm and started to read your mind while you sleep without waking you up. So we don't need you to wake up and tell us the story. We can look into your brain while you're sleeping and get residues of the dream. So now is when I'm going to make it a little less exciting to the audience. What we get is basic. We can tell that you're dreaming about something familiar, a person, a landmark that's nearby. You know, that's the level, an object. We can kind of get only, you know, very symbolic things things. We might know that you're seeing the color blue and the color green, that things are moving. So it's far from kind of uh, waking up and seeing a movie of your dreams the way many of the people who listen to us right now may imagine, but the proof of concept already happened. So now it's an engineering problem. Now we need to get better in really zooming into the dream and interpreting whether the landmark is the Eiffel Tower or the Sears Towers in Chicago. We kind of need to get better in the engineering part, but we already made the leap from not being able to see dreams to being able to see dreams. That's a big leap. So now we got to where we are right now, which is we can uh, have you go to sleep. 
you maintain sleep throughout the seven hours and we look at your brain when you're dreaming and extract some content. That's the first part. The second thing that happened in the last couple of years is that we learned that while you're dreaming, your brain actually is listening to the outside world. So we can do things to your sleeping brain that will cue aspects of your dream and change them. It could be non-invasive, like spraying a smell into your nose in the right moment, which will make your dream change. So if you have a bad dream when we spray the smell of roses, it will turn into a good dream. Not a dream about roses, but a good dream or vice versa. If you're having a dream and we spray the smell of rotten eggs, we can make you have a nightmare just by changing the kind of uh, valence of the dream with smells. We can do things with sound. We can do dreams with uh, with touch. So, so that's one approach. And the more invasive approach, which is what I spend a lot of time on, is we can actually zap your brain with uh, devices that uh, egg kind of activate magnetic uh, areas of your brain while you're dreaming and it will make you have an entirely different narrative to your dream or even wake you up in your dream but keep your dream active so you become a lucid dreamer and you suddenly control your dreams and that's the the magic so we can not only read your dreams but also write into them and essentially give you control so you become the director of your dream and that is a powerful thing for marketing and advertising agencies because now you cannot just look at what your brain naturally evokes, but actually get into it and start changing things in the story. And that, the fact that there are going to be the ability to read and write dreams, and also that in many ways we're going to have these devices, which means a whole bunch of products and services impregnated into our minds, is going to make the whole area of neuroscience critical to business and industry, which then goes to your first point, which is companies will have neuroscientists at the highest levels of power. Where will they find them and what will they help companies do? Okay, so right now, this has already happened, not even in the future. Many of the grad students who work with me, they finish their PhD and there's two options. It's a fork in the road. They can either go and become academics or they get a very high and lucrative financially offer from one of the big tech companies in Silicon Valley telling them, come and work for us. And it's not surprising. You know that uh, a lot of the social media platforms are very addictive. To become addictive, you have to know something about addiction. Neuroscientists do that. There's a lot of questions on how to make a person find websites or products simple and easy to use and intuitive. Neuroscientists spend a lot of time on understanding how perception works and they help those companies make sure that user doesn't need to read in manual, just kind of feels how it works. So neuroscientists already right now, when they finish my, the PhD with me, are recruited to work for Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and so on for their talents in neuroscience because those are relevant to product design, to marketing, to creating addictive behavior, but gamification, let's call it, and so on. That's already happening right now. Moving forward, because our work right now finds out how the brain works under certain conditions that are very helpful to the senior management of companies. They want to hire neuroscientists almost as consultants to the senior management on how to make decisions. I'll give you a concrete example. It used to be thought that people have ways to make decisions that are better and we should just know how to make decisions better and then you're going to be a smart CEO. What we learned in the last couple of years is that there isn't just one way to make decisions better, but there is one way for you. So you, Richard, might be better in making decisions in the morning and I might be better in the evening. Your wife might be better when she's angry, but your daughter when she is calm. Your best friend when he's just before the deadline and someone else way before others when they're alone, somewhere with people. So every person has a different brain profile. And the brain profile means that there is a state by which you make decisions better. Better means 
more aligned with your interest. You actually choose the item on the menu that you will be happiest with. And right now, neuroscientists, through a pretty easy process of looking at your brain and having you play some games while we scan your uh, brain, allows us to figure out your potential optimal state. So we can tell you, Richard, you're better in the morning when you're angry after you had a meal and two hours before the deadline. And once you know that, you can create an environment that allows you to make those decisions in the most optimal state. And we can now give it to each CEO, to each CFO, to each CMO. And in a very easy way, we can study them for a few hours and tell them this is the best way to do it. This means that a lot of people would want neuroscientists not just in the process of actually controlling the product or the marketing, but actually learning how to make decisions better. And that's another domain. That is critical. And when we think about it, even in the world of advertising and marketing, we've for a long time been fascinated with how we process information. We've done everything from watching people's eyeballs and their gazes, trying with focus groups, trying with, you know, going to their homes and trying to incite them by looking at their garbage to figure out what's behind this. But now, instead of all of those, we can plug in directly into the core. Exactly right. So I think that at the end of the day, all the inquiries before were trying to get at how you make decisions and how do you make the purchases in your mind. Now we can get to your mind and ask the right questions. And I think that it makes a lot of things easier. First of all, it gives us answers to questions that we want to ask directly. Second, it also gives us answers from parts of your brain that you might not have access to yourself. So if I ask you to give me an answer, you will give me an answer. But it's unclear if the answer that you give me actually speaks to the part of the brain that made the decision. Maybe you made decisions based on some impulse that you have, and you wouldn't be able to say, you know, I was impulsive because I was uh, having uh, low blood sugar levels, and that is what made me purchase this item. You would not use this language. So you will give us an answer that will be wrong, and now neuroscience can get that. And the last thing is that sometimes we can actually uh, get into ambivalence. So I'll give you a quick example. If you're taking a survey, and we ask you to, I don't know, tell us how much you love a product on a scale of 1 to 10, and you rank it as a seven. There's a chance that you actually thought it's a seven, but there's a chance that you also said, it's maybe a six, maybe an eight, I'm not really sure. I guess I'm gonna choose seven. From the perspective of a survey person, seven is a seven. We don't know if this seven was the average of two numbers or just the number itself, but neuroscience will tell us that. Neuroscience will tell us, oh, he was confused when he was circling a seven. He was considering a lot more options. So let's think of this answer differently than another answer. All of those are examples where neuroscience can be helpful in the world of marketing or uh, the creative kind of process, because it tells us something that the person himself cannot tell us. I'm now going to take you in a slightly different direction because what is top of mind for a lot of people is this pandemic and companies are grappling with how people connect, how you get back to the office or not get back to the office. Is there anything in the world of what you do that can aid, guide, or whether you have a perspective on this hybrid work, return to work, unbundled work, whatever it is, or the office, it's all been working. So I'll, I'll give you two thoughts that are orthogonal, they're unrelated, but they're somehow uh, speak to this idea of how the world should and will look when we go back to in-person. One thing I would say is that neuroscience has explored a lot the question of isolation. What does it do to your brain? Uh, we didn't have a lot of data on that before because we didn't have people in isolation for that long that we could experiment with. Now the entire world has gone through a large-scale experiment so we can actually see what it does to their brain, and those are not great things. I'll give you the most interesting data point that actually helped neuroscientists prepare for this, and that actually is data that comes from NASA. 
So it turns out that NASA is uh, gearing up to send astronauts to Mars. Like everyone in the world, the next kind of big frontier for space exploration is to have humans land on Mars. And that's what everyone is preparing for. Only that the journey to Mars is very different than the one to the moon. Uh, whereas if you go to the moon and there's a problem while the eagle is landing, you can just call Houston and say, Houston, we have a problem. And someone within 10 seconds will give you an answer and it comes to you and you can correct things. A message from a Mars rover to Earth and back would take lots of time. So if there's a problem while the astronauts are landing, they can't just call NASA and get an answer and fix things. They are pretty much on their own. And the mission to Mars would involve about three people in a little box flying for eight months in each direction. So for many, many months, they're going to be by themselves in this box in isolation. So NASA has said, we need to not just uh, work on making the astronauts fit and teach them how to control the spaceship and so on. We also need to think about how their cognitive skills will fare when they're by themselves for so long without any human communication. They can't really get answers. Uh, they can't really get help. And basically, they rely on each other for all the social interaction in the world. So in preparation for that, they did a few simulations where they took astronauts and put them on Earth in a little box for a few months and had them simulate the life on a spaceship just to see what happens. And they also studied their brain and their cognitive abilities, and they sent to neuroscientists like myself the data. And they told us, here's the data of three people who were in a box for the last six months. See what you can make of their brain activity. And since it's public data, a lot of scientists have looked at it. And what we have found are a lot of challenges to your cognitive abilities that come from being in isolation. You become angrier, your cognitive capacities become kind of flawed, you make more mistakes, you are less likely to be social. So a lot of bad things happen to our brain just because our brain doesn't get the stimuli that it used to get from the environment and from other people. In that sense, if you trust this study and you kind of extrapolate to the entire world, the entire world for the last two years has been in mini isolation. Some people more, some people less, but many of us have seen very few people in the last two years have been to a lot less places than before. And this doesn't just change, you know, your social skills and how many friends you have or what kind of food you get into your stomach in the experiences you have. It actually changes our mind. We think differently. And in that sense, I think that we're looking into a little recovery period that will be needed for people to get back to being as cognitively capable as they were before. That long answer was my first point of what happened to us in isolation and how we learned about that and what we can make of it. The other point I would make comes from a totally different field, which also neuroscience is interested in a lot, which is generally what happens to the change of scenery and should people stay at home or go back to the office, which is a question a lot of companies ask. So I'll borrow from a field that neuroscientists have explored for the last 30 years, known as embodied cognition. Embodied cognition essentially is the idea that the environment around you affects your brain. So whether you sit on a high chair or a low chair, whether your desk is thick or thin, uh, whether you write with a pencil or a pen, actually changes how you think and what you write. I'll give you a concrete example that will make it clear. In a study that now is quite popular, people were asked to come to the lab. They show up in the lab, someone shakes their hands, give them a cup of tea, ask them to sit down, and ask them to write for the next 10 minutes an essay about their mothers. Write something about your mom. That's all you are instructed to do. And people sit there and they write for 10 minutes something about their mom, and then you take the paper, and 
independent people were looking at the essays and ranking them whether they're nice or naughty. Meaning if the person wrote something nice about their mothers that is loving and caring, or did they write something that is a bit hostile or kind of not as friendly and loving as you would expect from one writing about their mom. And it turned out that more than anything, what predicted whether you're going to be in the loving category or in the more hostile category was the cup of tea that you received when you entered the room. Because half the people received a cup of iced tea and half received a cup of warm tea. And they were asked to hold it in their hand while they write the essay. And those who held a cup of hot tea wrote nice, warm, and loving things. And those that had a cold tea in their hand wrote a little colder and hostile things. Not one-to-one, but enough to make it significant. And the point is that the tea that you hold in your hand somehow permeates in your body. And the temperature changes your mood and changes your thinking. And even though you have the entire spectrum of thoughts about your mom, you have loving thoughts and hostile thoughts. Somehow the mood you're in makes some of them more salient and it drives your thoughts. Now, no one would tell you, none of the people in the study would tell you, I wrote nasty thing about my mom because you gave me iced tea. That's why it elevated my thoughts. They would just think that this is what they think. Same is true for the people with the hot tea. They wouldn't say, oh, I was feeling warm in my body, so I wrote nice and warm things. They would just think that these are their thoughts. But it turns out that the experience in our body, the temperature that our body was feeling, affected our mind. Now, this experiment is one out of hundreds of experiments by now that were showing the same idea, that we can influence your thoughts by many things that are outside of your mind. Embodied cognition. Your body affects your cognition. In that kind of aspect, the fact that we're not going to be in an office isn't just, okay, you're working from home, you're working from an office, you're looking at a Zoom screen, you're looking at a real world screen. It actually changes our mind and we wouldn't know that. We wouldn't know that we're actually thinking different thoughts just because we're not in the same place with other people. The fact that we don't smell the same smell, don't hear the same sirens right now because I'm in one place and you're in another place seems to us irrelevant, but it is relevant. It means that not being in the same office or being in the same office will actually change entirely the experience. And in that sense, I think that companies will need to explore more whether they want people to think alike or whether they want to think differently when they decide whether to bring them into the office or not. Well, those two things, which is A, that it changes our mood, but also the way we think, is pretty extraordinary. And I think the way you've framed it, which is, do you want people to think alike or do you want to think differently? And, you know, in a world where people are looking either to create cult-like cultures, you'd probably want people to think alike. On the other hand, in a world where innovation is connection between different ideas and you want diversity, you may want to think differently and maybe some range of those that we move forward. But without a doubt, this whole idea of embodied intelligence is a big deal. I think now we have to make sure that the next time I speak to my boss, I give him something hot to drink so he has warm thoughts. I agree with you 100%. You said it correctly, and I think that it's worth uh, amplifying, which is it's not obvious that you want diversity or that you want to not have diversity. Yes. It's something that has to do with tasks. Yes. So if your job is creative and you need to come up with new ideas, it's probably useful to have a team that's very diverse sitting in the same room because everyone's going to think differently and you're going to be able to cover a wide spectrum of ideas. But if your job is to be the Ferrari pit stop assembly team that needs to change a tire as fast as possible, then you might want the team that thinks the same. And when I take the tire out, you already know that the next thing I would do is put this screw and this nail here and you do it faster than me. In that sense, based on the task, you can think of different types of brains that you want in the room. And the nice thing about neuroscience is that we can now quantify that. So I can now look at your brain, Richard, look at my brain, 
and see how similar we are when it comes to being creative. And then say, you know, those two guys basically give me the same thought. They're, they're identical. So in that task, take Rishad, but don't put Moran in the room because it's useless. But bring instead April, who can essentially, you know, come up with a different idea or Mark or Jacob and someone that thinks very differently. But when you want to decide on merger and acquisition and you want a vote of two people that really see the same way, put Rishad and Moran in the same room because they will essentially amplify each other's thoughts and they will converge together perfectly. So the point is that we can now quantify similarity between brains by essentially putting devices on your brain, on my brain, measuring our brains in a very short experiment and give you a number that says these two are 0.9 similar, these two are 0.2 similar, and, and it becomes useful as another tool to think of teams, not just as individuals collected, but actually as one collective brain. That is absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure we could go on with this conversation, but I'm going to have to relook at movies, which is now I understand that part of your life. I'm going to have to basically rethink my brain, which is another part of your life. And I've got to make sure now that I have to now worry about not just hacking my computer, but someone trying to hack my mind, which is a third part of your life, which brings it all together, which is uh, pretty fascinating. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we summarize? I will say one thing, which is why it's important for me to do this call. Yes. I think that neuroscientists are spending a lot of time exploring fantastic idea and fascinating ideas. The idea of looking into dreams, the idea of putting neural implants in your brain, changing your memories, expanding your reality, they're all fascinating and fantastic ideas. But neuroscientists spend too little time thinking about the consequences of that, what it would do to the world and so on. And in many ways, we're not equipped for that. We're just citizens like everyone else. We can think, oh, this is not good, this is bad, but we don't really know how to do with that. And the reason I think it's important for me to do this show and to have your audience learn about those ideas, because on that note, everyone is equal. The fact that we are yes. doing this dream thing doesn't matter. What we need everyone who listens to your podcast right now to do is to ask themselves as it's over, do I want it in my life? Are the benefits outweighing the risks? If I do, how do I get it? And how do I make sure that my company is the first to use that? But if I don't, who do I write? Which congresswoman I, I uh, activate so she will regulate that and stop? Because I think that the risk that I see is that no one will do anything. It will become part of a reality. The big monopolies of Silicon Valley will use that and then people are going to be upset, but it will be too late. It's going to be five years before it's going to be in your life. Decide right now if you want it there. Well, I would say that prescient both warning, because I know you're optimistic about this, but you clearly also look at the downsides, is something that we should have all paid attention to in advertising-supported media that went from becoming an advertising operating system to a society operating system to now a mental operating system while no one was watching. And the mental operating system is controlled by five white men in Silicon Valley. So we don't probably want the same thing happening in, you know, where, where the world is going. So thank you for coming on and both giving us this fascinating journey, but also asking us to pay attention because this is in the next five to 10 years going to impact our lives. We might as well take a lot of interest in tomorrow because we want to spend the rest of our lives there. Thank you for giving me the chance. I think it's important. Absolutely. Well, thank you. We've had the opportunity to listen and learn from Moran Surf, who is a professor of neuroscience and business, but we've quickly figured out that he is also a hacker. He is a neuroscientist and he is also a placement 
of making movies scientifically real. And among the predictions that have been made, which are very wide sweeping and implications both for our business and for life, is that we will soon be reading and writing dreams. Many of us will have implants in our brains and that because of the implications on business and society, there will be neuroscientists on the board. There are going to be a lot of upsides, but also a lot of risks for which we need to pay attention. And then it comes down to our current lives, where we work, how we work, and just our biological or biophysical presence around us uh, can change our moods. And maybe the next time you talk to your boss, take them a warm drink. They may have warm thoughts about you. Thank you. What next? A publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.